the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. Sprawlcast is a show for curious Calgarians who want more than the daily news grind. We don't do press release journalism. And we go deep to bring you stories and conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Conversations like this one. In the last Sprawlcast, I spoke with Jared Wesley about political culture in this province. Wesley is a University of Alberta political scientist who leads an initiative called the Common Ground Project. And he talked about an exercise he's done where people are asked to draw an Albertan, portraying what an Albertan looks like. And there was you know, very few people in our focus groups that actually draw themselves as Albertans. And that, that's a bit disturbing to me, right? And, and that people of color, women, um, uh, you know, younger people would draw that you know, stereotypical Joe Albertan, 55 or 30 to 50 year old um, man in plaid. Um, and that, that to me, it suggests that there's a real disjunction between who Albertans actually are and who they think they are. Wesley and his colleagues are trying to figure out why this happens. And what they found is that it starts happening when people are in school, when they're young. So we've had, we've, we've had you know, students from grade three up to grade 12 drawing us Albertans. And we found that it actually comes that, that Alberta cowboy myth starts to really you know, set in people's minds somewhere in high school. And we're trying to figure out what is it in high school that makes them, uh, that, that makes folks, you know, turn away from drawing, say, like Connor McDavid and, and Jan Arden, which we see a lot of drawings of, and to start drawing Joe, um, to stop drawing women and people of color, and start drawing exclusively men. One of the points Wesley made in our interview is that political culture is a story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And that story is conveyed and embedded in different ways, including through K-6 curriculum. Now, curriculum has been a political flashpoint in Alberta for some time, but it's really ratcheted up here with the province's new K-6 draft curriculum, which reflects the ideology of the Alberta government at this time, and is widely opposed by educators. Against this backdrop, some Albertans have been working on another curriculum-related project for a number of years now. It's called Culture Commons, and it's an information hub for teachers who want to bring an anti-racist lens to the work they do in the classroom. So while this bigger struggle over curriculum in Alberta has been happening, a group of volunteers have been putting this project together, trying to make their own changes within education on a more grassroots level. The Culture Commons project is meant to equip teachers with some of the resources they need to disrupt systemic racism in their classrooms. It's not something that replaces the current curriculum so much as complements it. To Jared Wesley's point, it gives teachers some of the tools they can use to help a diverse group of students see themselves in this province and in their own classroom. The project is an example of Albertans seeing a need and mobilizing to do something about it. 
I spoke with Iman Bukhari and Michelle Kasten McBanwa to find out more. Iman Bukhari is the CEO of the Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation, the nonprofit organization that put this project together. And Michelle Kasten McBanwa is a teacher and one of the volunteers who worked on the project. To start out, uh, yeah, can you just tell me a bit about how Culture Commons started and kind of what it came out of? Absolutely. Uh, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation first. Uh, we're essentially a not-for-profit organization that's actually run by committed volunteers of millennial and Gen Z um, generations um, that really work to improve race relations across Canada, really. But most of us are based out of Calgary or surrounding areas. And really, the work that we do is about creating cultural understanding through education, technology and arts, as well as anti-racism work. And so around 2016, we had actually been just about working on a project where we had been interviewing 150 Alberta teachers, K-12 teachers, talking about racism as well as multiculturalism within classrooms. And through that study, we found that there's a lot of work that needs to be done and racism is a concern for Albertan teachers. And with that, we asked them, hey, what, what could be a good solution? Because we want to try and do what we can on our part, even as volunteers. And that's when teachers were like, you know what, it would actually be great to have some sort of a resource hub, one place that could be created for K-12 teachers, specifically for Alberta teachers that seeks to disrupt systemic racism. So listing, you know, thousands of resources by grades uh, specific to subjects, specific to the curriculum that teachers can use on a daily basis. And that's really where Culture Commons came about. And, and when you surveyed those teachers, what were some of your takeaways in terms of the needs that are out there in how teachers are teaching right now and some of the gaps that were, that were there that you saw? So there were a lot of needs, I have to say. We have a full report on CanadianCMF.com if anybody's interested. But essentially, we interviewed 150 teachers across Alberta, so rural as well as urban, various cities and towns, various grades even. And a lot of them had mentioned in terms of challenges that they had limited time. They didn't have time to search up resources, that they had limited resources that they weren't provided for them. They had limited knowledge that they do not have knowledge of other cultures or, or what racism is or how to be an anti-racist. And several of them also identified that, hey, my personal identity actually gets in the way of me teaching this as I as I don't come from this background, I don't have this knowledge, I, I don't feel comfortable engaging in this. Uh, in terms of systemic level uh, issues, a lot of them mentioned, hey, Eurocentric curriculum, that's one of the biggest issues that they identified, and that there's no guidelines or policies in their school, even about multiculturalism, let alone uh, anti-racism type of initiatives that their school has limited exposure like some of them mentioned that hey we're in very rural areas you actually don't have diversity in our schools in terms of racial diversity as well as other diversity as well so we're we're not sure how to like engage in this conversation or help our students we have no funding we have limited support from management uh, so many different types of concerns were continuously brought up and Michelle, how did you get involved as a teacher and as a volunteer? Um, Two-part question. All right. Um, well, as a teacher, um, I 
was uh, I had just graduated university and was kind of seeking direction in my life. Um, so um, around the same time that I graduated uh, from the University of Lethbridge, I had moved back to Calgary and had started uh, what I call a decolonization journey, kind of examining all aspects of my life and seeing how I um, fit in to the current systems that we are upholding. Um, and I came across uh, Mr. Courtney Walcott, who's currently a city councillor for Calgary, um, but is also an educator. And I kind of shot him an email and asking, asking him for kind of some direction and some advice. So we met up for coffee and he asked me about what my goals are and um, how I want to um, proceed in this world of education and how I view myself as an educator. And after talking with him, he uh, led me into the uh, Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation. Uh, he told me about the volunteer project, the culture commons, and how he think that would be a really great start for me to kind of navigate who I am as a new educator in Calgary. Yeah, yeah. And, and what, uh, what subject and grades do you teach? I currently teach uh, French as a second language for elementary, so grades one to six. It's interesting because when I first heard about the project, you know, the first subject I think of, and I think the first subject that many folks will think of is social studies. And you think about, okay, anti-racism resources for teachers. Uh, well, that's going to come into effect in social studies primarily. Um, but in fact, uh, what you've got is quite uh, robust and quite uh, goes well beyond social studies. And I, I find that interesting because that's something that maybe people don't think of like, oh, math, what does anti-racism education in math look like? And, and as you say, it's that, you know, look at these mathematicians who are people of color, look at these different examples. Um, I, is, is that kind of a stereotype that you have to work against that, that, that this is just social studies or that, you know, it's just kind of in that realm? Absolutely. And that's, that's the biggest thing that I've seen, you know, not only just in education, but everywhere when people are like, oh, anti-racism. Okay. This is just something that we talk about on wellness day or like something like that's like, oh, we talk about our feelings or something like that, or social day or whatever you want to call it. But it's, it literally to be an anti-racist involves every aspect of your life. And that, that has been a big thing where we have seen teachers being like, oh, you actually have something for sciences. This actually relates to dance. This relates to cosmetology, um, health, fashion, foods, physical education. Like literally every aspect. And I know we're talking about education here. So I'll focus on that can relate to that. We have tried to make it as easy as possible to ensure that our current generation, our next generation has all, all the information that they need in order to make an equitable society. And I'm so thankful to teachers like Michelle, because honestly, we would not have been where we are without them because we started off as you know a smaller team of 20 volunteers who actually didn't come from a teaching background but rather had ideas of hey let's do this and let's make this difference but then all these teachers came about and volunteered you know hundreds and hundreds of hours and looked at every resource and really did about the work so I can't honestly thank them enough and I'm so excited for this to create actual systemic change and that's what I really want to put emphasis on. You can create systemic change without millions of dollars. 
I am so tired of seeing the government spend millions of dollars and, you know, any government on anti-racism initiatives, as, as they say, that are so cookie cutter, that are so like not able to look outside the box and not even wanting to create change and not able to have difficult conversations. If we wanted, we could easily you know, create an anti-racist city, anti-racist edu- education system or whatever else. It's just we have to really think about it and work with the people that are involved. And, and when you look around the teaching profession, I mean, you mentioned going to school and then that after you were done with university, you went through this journey of decolonization. And Iman, you mentioned some of the survey work that you folks did for teachers. I'm curious, Michelle, like, do you, do you see a lot of teachers kind of working through this stuff in terms of, you know, how do I be an anti-racist teacher? How do I have these conversations in the classroom? What does this look like? Yeah, I'm just curious to the extent that you see that conversation happening or not in your profession. Um, what I do observe is um, it's more of a kind of checkbox of, you know, um, this is a requirement that we teachers need to kind of uh, get through. So one example I can think of is um, in the teaching quality standards, one of our requirements, I guess, is um, knowledge on uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit um, culture. And I think a lot of the times, because as Mon mentioned before, just the lack of resources, the lack of time or the lack of support, um, teachers kind of tend towards thoughtlessly putting in uh, something that would kind of check the box of like, you know, like I played a video on um, like Blackfoot culture or what orange shirt day means, or I did an activity with the kids about truth and reconciliation. And it's kind of like a one-off kind of thing. And then that's considered uh, checking the box off. Whereas again, as Amon mentioned, you know, being anti-racist and really delving into changing um, what we're doing systemically involves like everyday hard work. So I think teachers are doing the best they can with what they have so far. But uh, yeah, one of the main reasons why we started this Culture Commons is because, you know, what what is out there might not be enough for teachers. And um, just from experience, being a very um, a new educator into the system, um, there's not a lot of time to really delve into uh, things like anti-racism or expanding um, the curriculum and diversifying it. So um, it's really important that the Culture Commons or projects like this um, are brought to the forefront so that a lot, a lot less work, there's a lot less work for teachers to uh, kind of achieve something that hopefully they, they want to integrate into their teaching practice. I'm curious too, I mean, when we talk about education, we're often talking about, you know, understandably, we're talking about the system, we're talking about teachers, we're talking about curriculum. But I'm curious if you've seen examples of how kids engage in these conversations about race and and kind of their their ability and their their insights into those conversations versus you know adults who you know as you mentioned with the work with the work that you did surveying teachers like some people 
you know, don't know how to talk about this stuff. Some people avoid it. Some people might, you know, understand it. Uh, totally different from each other. I'm just curious, like, if you've seen how kids engage with this. Uh, yeah. From from an early age, like, honestly, from, from age two, um, and I'm quoting this from uh, a book that I read a while back called uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Beverly Tatum. Um, and uh, she mentions how from like age two, children notice physical differences early on. So obviously, you know, for example, like my skin color is brown and that person's skin color is white or my my eyes are blue and th- those person's eyes are green. And I think just from the way previous generations have handled conversations about race, um, one of the first things that we kind of automatically do is shush the kid and tell them like, oh, like, don't, don't say that out loud. Don't talk about it. And so from, from an early age, children are taught to not talk about uh, race um, because that's just what we've been doing for so long. So for us to assume that children don't necessarily observe these physical differences or even just differences in general um, is silly. We, we haven't necessarily given children the vocabulary or the understanding to really talk about these issues or talk about physical differences in a way that allows them to understand and keep an open mind. So um, I know from my experiences with kids, um, and maybe because I am a young educator or maybe because um, social media has really helped progress conversations about race, but I find that a lot of the kids that um, I have taught in the past um, are a little bit more aware of what race is and how they fit in to everyday lives. So I know so many um, kids in a previous teaching assignment I had where I was teaching grades six to eight um, were really aware of the whole Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement and um, what that means to them, um, maybe not being part of the community the black community itself, but uh, seeing where they fit into the bigger picture and what they can do about it um, in order to yeah, affect that change. And I would just like to add a little bit more to that. Just, you know, I've done hundreds of presentations for, for children over the past 12 years, because that's how old our organization is. Um, most of them have obviously been in person other than the last two years have been online. So I'll, I'll go off with what's more in person, because I think that that's a little bit different than online. But most of the time, students are honestly just curious. They don't, um, as particularly younger ones, are just curious. They want to know, and they have different types of questions that can be awkward at times or hurtful. And I think it's so important to address that instead of being like, go to the office, think about what you said. Why don't you help them think about what you said? Because the racism is a reality. Like it's a reality for racialized, for racialized, for BIPOC folks, and it can't be ignored. Um, so just pushing it away isn't isn't going to help. And it's in fact you need to expose children to normalize differences. I think that will help them more than anything. And kids are going to pick up on on what's going on anyway, as Michelle just said, and they're going to hurt others with it unless if you kind of talk about it. Like I can't tell you how many times in a presentation did I have children saying, can I say the N word or can I like, you know, saying something incredibly inappropriate? Why is it wrong for me to, to wear this? How come he can wear it? And I can't, he says the N word, but I can't, what's the difference, you know? And it's really about having those conversations. And 
I will say sometimes having those conversations are difficult for teachers if they're not from the background. So if a, if a child is to ask me as a female brown person, why can't I say the N-word? Of course, I'll have an answer, but perhaps they're not going to take my answer as seriously as they will to, to, to the next person who actually is Black that explains it to them. So that's why it's so important to have diversity in staff as well. Um, so th there's so many different things. And as Michelle said, you know, studies show that the age of two or three, they see racial differences. So this is an absolute reality and conversations can look and be different. And that's what, why we need to understand that there needs to be a variety of like, that's why it's so systemic. We can have all these great resources, which we do. And that's the first step. But if, if your staff isn't diverse, racially diverse and other way diverse, then, then they're not it's not going to create that environment either. It's really all about being intentional. Uh, and we need, we need people in charge who make these decisions to be intentional, to be, to, to be an understanding of this. But the, the honest reality is that a lot of the folks that are in charge, like management, aren't anti-racist themselves, don't understand racism to that extent, hence why they make decisions that are not helpful. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned, both of you mentioned that the kind of intuition that kids have from a young age to like to notice difference and ask questions about it and kind of articulate it and that's that's so true that what you said about the adult response can often just shut it down and and it seems like a lot of this work that you're doing is really about kind of keeping that i don't know keeping that ground tilled up you know what i mean like keeping that soil fresh where it's like okay we can have these conversations something can take root and grow here versus you know let's not talk about difference because what you're describing is is messy right is is that is that a part of it like embracing the the messiness and the the awkwardness like you said iman absolutely race relations is very messy because it involves people everything that involves people is messy good luck finding something that isn't messy and that's why you, you don't have to be afraid to have those conversations. So if, if a teacher, like, for example, I'm just going to bring it back to the N-word because I can't tell you how many teachers we get emails on a daily basis saying students are saying the N-word. I don't know what to say. Their favorite rapper says it. And I like, you know, there's a million excuses for them when it's like you as a teacher need to create that environment where conversations can take place in a healthy and safe manner. And if you don't have that education, how on earth are you going to bring it to your students? Instead of the whole color blindness thing, we're all the same, we're, you know, we shouldn't be treating anybody badly. You're really not, you're, you're just creating more problems because what you're telling kids is that, you know, your, ex, their experience doesn't matter. Instead, you need to look at the history. That's why we need to have black history in our curriculum. And if we don't, then we need to use the resources in culture commons or similar ones to create it because we do have certain things in our curriculum that says to teach about diversity and whatnot, and we just need to use that. I know it's not ideal, but we need to bring, bring Black history and so many other histories within our classrooms, and that's why, that's how you have this conversation. Um, I would just actually like to add on to what Iman said um, about, uh, like, having these conversations and about what you said, Jeremy, about things being messy. Um, yeah, as Iman mentioned, um, <laughs> when people are involved, you know, things are messy, you know, our feelings get in the way, our ego gets in the way. Um, but I think what's really important is recognizing, um, not even as an educator, but just as a human being that we make mistakes. And the whole point of life is 
for us to kind of navigate who we are in the world through uh, these experiences, whether we make good decisions or decisions that we're not necessarily proud of. And so what better way to instill a growth mindset or to kind of um, be a role model to kids about um, making decisions and having a growth mindset. So learning from failures, then initiating conversations like this, or really having vulnerable, open conversation with kids where maybe because you don't have all of the answers or because you come from a different background that you aren't able to um, fully address all of the issues going on in the classroom, but um, starting from somewhere, working towards something that you um, are proud of would be a really great way for students to kind of see like, oh, you know, nobody has all the answers, but we're working together in order to kind of create um, a better society or I guess a better classroom or, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And kids totally need the the room and the space to to make mistakes. Like I, I worry about that with social media and thinking about, you know, with, with kids on social media so early and it's like, there's, maybe there's some benefits to that too, but like, do they have as much space to, to flesh some of that stuff out and to have those conversations? Yeah. Um, I think with social media specifically, um, that's kind of integrated into, you know, creating, um, or helping students kind of navigate themselves in the world. But, uh, yeah, with social media, there's this idea of having kind of like a perfect life or, um, it being very curated without seeing all of the the mistakes or failures or the effort that kind of comes into whatever it is that you're looking at, whether it's, you know, a really cute selfie or a, a vlog about someone who has their life together and like, this is what it takes to be successful. Um, it's, uh, it can be very dangerous for not just students, but for anyone who is on social media to forget that, uh, what you see on social media is just such a small blip of what human life is really about. And so um, I'm also an advocate for um, teaching media literacy to students. And I think integrating that into anti-racism would be ideal. And I think uh, actually connect with one another because as Iman mentioned before, you know, something that we all assume when we hear like anti-racism is just like social studies curriculum, but um, even something like cosmetology. So like beauty standards. So when you are scrolling through social media and your feed is primarily consistent of, you know, maybe um, like people who don't look like you, of course, you're going to assume that the beauty standard is maybe like long eyelashes or long curly blonde hair um, or having a certain type of figure. And so um, even media literacy is something that um, ties into anti-racism. Absolutely. And, and just talking about that, you know, like you can even nowadays you'll see certain brands and stuff having diverse skin colors. Like you'll see different types of skin colors. But as Michelle said, they won't have your figure. They might have your lips, but they won't have your nose. They might have your skin tone, but they won't have your your blemishes. You know, like there's so many different conversations that we need to be having and just on that conversation piece, can we, can we have a meaningful conversation? Can it actually go somewhere? Not just a check mark. 
I'm just so tired of check marks where folks are like, we're going to have these conversations. We're going to talk to folks. We're going to figure it out. And then it literally sits in a shelf somewhere or a video somewhere or like a check mark saying that we had the conversations done. That's not enough. People don't just want to talk and be traumatized. We want to see change. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. You've been listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Klossus and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And this has been my conversation with Iman Bukhari and Michelle Kasten-McBanwa. You can find out more about the Culture Commons project by visiting the website at culturecommons.ca. Make sure you're signed up for The Sprawl's weekend newsletter if you're not already. We send it out every Saturday morning And that's the best way to get the latest from The Sprawl, including stories, sprawl casts, and comics, depending on the week. Make sure you're following us on social media as well. We are at Sprawl Calgary on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This episode was edited by Mike Todd. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.